it, it does show that change on some of these topics is something that happens fairly slowly, um, but it's also because of the way in which um, legislatures deal with the tasks at hand. Um, you know, we could do some similarities in this sense with uh, smoking tobacco. Uh, if you had told somebody 30 years ago that the number of places where they could enjoy a cigarette was going to get smaller and smaller, they probably would not, would not have believed it. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. In a world with a 24-hour news cycle, robot trolls on the internet, and unprecedented political changes, knowing where we stand on some core issues can be a bit difficult. Fortunately, there are tools that can cut through the noise and help us find answers to understand where Canadians and Americans stand on animal-related matters. Mario Canseco, president of Research Co., polled Canadians and Americans on their views regarding eating animals, hunting for meat, trophy hunting, keeping animals in zoos and aquariums, and rodeos. Of significance, the survey also found that 81% of Canadians and 75% of Americans oppose killing animals for their fur. Mario joined Defender Radio to discuss these findings, how surveys can be misused or misinterpreted during elections, and why animal advocates can feel hopeful. This episode is presented by AnimalStone.com. The Toronto-based jewelry maker made it their mission to create timeless, wearable art that pays homage to animals by giving texture and life to each and every piece. If the gorgeous jewelry itself isn't enough to send you to AnimalStone.com for a look, consider that a portion of sales go to frontline conservation efforts around the world. Every animal lover in your life will look and feel wonderful wearing AnimalStone.com art. And they'll love you even more for it. Head over to AnimalStone.com and use promo code DefenderRadio for 10% off your order. That's AnimalStone.com and promo code DefenderRadio. All right, well, why don't we uh, dive in? I want to start talking with this this first study, but I'd love to talk a little bit about elections and polling after, as I, as I yeah. said. Um, this study you did, though, Canadians and Americans differ on issues related to animals. Uh, the polling, it's a very interesting set of questions, and the uh, I thought I'd start with what were you, I guess, what was the goal in doing this? Was it very much to start conversation? Was, were you looking for something in particular or was this sort of a, let's see what happens when we ask these questions? Well, I think it's a combination of both. You know, we have a situation where we've asked questions about animals uh, and, and the way we relate to them before. Uh, because of the closeness of the U.S. election, we had the opportunity to ask it also in the U.S., which I thought was important because of the way in which e-commerce has affected everything related uh, to the way we buy things, especially because of the pandemic, you know, we're offering a lot, we're ordering a lot of stuff online. Uh, we have the holiday season coming up, and you know, we already had numbers, uh, particularly uh, related to the dismay of most Canadians towards wearing garments made out of fur. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to check how the situation was doing in the states, and you know, having that opportunity to compare the findings of the two countries uh, was certainly something that we wanted to see. Um, but it's also to start a trend. You know, one of the things that I like about this, um, this thing that I do 
is the opportunity to look at trends over time. And, you know, you start to look at somebody like Gallup in the U.S., for instance, which started asking about interracial marriage in the 40s or 50s. And you see that trend line dropping to a level where it's no longer something that is meaningful. So, Mm -hmm. you know, my hope is, you know, 10, 12 years from now, looking into those numbers and being able to look at the trends and, and look at the way we behave sociologically. I think it also gives a really cool opportunity for us, uh, and that's the those of us who are nerds about this stuff, it's a cool opportunity <laughs> to really look at Canada and America culturally as well. Because so often we are showing the things we have in common and with the, the advent of, of social media and the intensity of information, misinformation and disinformation now available on the internet to the general public, it gets confusing. Where do people actually stand? Because if you spend 10 minutes in the comments on CBC, you just assume everyone's terrible. Yes. Um, but these this data shows uh, both some really, really fine similarities, some significant differences, and a lot of growth, which is the exciting part for me. Um, but I thought like the first one right off the top, 76% of Canadians, 75% of Americans are in favor of eating animals. That sounds about right, I think, to most of us. And it is an exceptionally similar statistic. Yeah, it has a lot to do with um, the way in which people have adapted uh, to different diets. And I think we saw a situation in the early stages of the pandemic uh, where you saw a lot of criticism towards the way in which the wet markets operated in China when we started talking about, well, maybe this is the origin of the virus. Somebody was buying something. Uh, We should ban the way in which these places operate. And we saw a little bit of a trend in the early stages of people who were flirting with adopting vegetarian or vegan diets. Uh, It hasn't materialized at the level that many people expected. Uh, We still have roughly one in four who are uncomfortable with this. Um, But it's it's an interesting stat to look uh, into the future. You know, we had a little bit of a shift, particularly when it comes to uh, hamburgers made out of uh, plant-based protein, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, there's definitely room for growth. And I think it's ultimately a matter of figuring out where we go with this. You know, if we want to look at it as a trend from the fast food industry, uh, you know, in the early 80s, people thought McDonald's is crazy to be selling chicken nuggets. And and now it's one of the things that they sell the most. So it's ultimately about figuring out whether people adapt to this and start to change not only what they eat outside, but also try to incorporate some of those things into their own diets when they're in their homes. Yeah, and it's it doesn't take long then. I mean, the there's a very, I don't want to say obvious, but a, a similar response in hunting animals for meat, 65 in Canada, 67 in the United States, which again is roughly what I would expect personally. It's actually a little lower than I expected. Um, yeah. I, I, I presumed it would have been closer to that 75, that three-quarter mark again. Well, I think there's a couple of aspects here. You know, there's definitely a situation in specific areas uh, where you are bound to get more people who believe that this is something that is correct. And, you know, you start to look into the trends, uh, particularly in places in Canada, when you're looking at hunting animals for meat, uh, you have, for instance, British Columbia at 60%, but it climbs all the way to 69% in Alberta, a little bit higher in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Uh, the notion that this is fine because you're going to be using the animal for your sustenance uh, is uh, lower than it is when you're comparing it to just eating animals. And that, it, it very much seems to be on the, the line of how are animals being used? And, and this was a, a, actually, it, it relates to a study I very recently read 
that I'm going to be looking into for another interview. So I'm not going to reference it directly, but um, <laughs> it did show a very compelling uh, uh, dissonance uh, for people who in, in, in this, this was a study looking at the way people perceive uh, non-human animal rights from focus groups, uh, from using focus groups. And there's a lot yes. of this. There's a comfort with using animals when it benefits people. But as soon as it's more about just doing something to an animal, people very quickly back away. And I think looking at your survey, it reflects that as well, because then when we look at zoos and aquariums, 64% of Americans are okay with it, but now it's only 39% of Canadians. Um, and then when we break that out across the, the, the demos, I think it kind of goes where we expect it to, um, just in terms of location, uh, uh, gender identification, things like that. Uh, and then rodeos, similar, 46 of Americans, 32% of Canadians. Um, and then when we talk about fur, which of course is the one that gets us at the fur bears interested, 25% <laughs> of Americans support it and only 19% of Canadians. Um, and I'd like to talk about that in detail, but I, I do find these interests, it, it does seem to parallel this other study I've read about focus groups showing that and this is not, I'm not agreeing with this. I'm trying to be objective in, in, in this statement. When the general public who is not familiar with a lot of the stuff that those of us involved in advocacy or who are yeah. intense animal lovers know about, when they're unaware of some of this, they look at it from a very pragmatic point of view, it seems, um, in, in some ways, in that sort of uh, vacuumous logic of, well, is this good for us or not good for us? And right. if it's not good for us, like if it's not giving us a very clear benefits, then I'm comfortable walking away from it. And that's where I think we see these changes in zoos and aquariums, rodeos and fur, whereas the animal use for the benefit of people, very, very specifically in terms of eating animals, um, which is arguably not necessary at all, but we uh, we do see all of a sudden that shift back to, well, no, we need to be able to do that. So I think it's very compelling that we are able to see some very clear cultural lines in the sand through this survey. Well, definitely. I think it also shows some of the changes that we've had over the past couple of decades. Um, you know, we've had a lot of uh, discussions related to keeping animals in captivity for any reason. Uh, but it seems to have been uh, particularly strong when it comes to the use of animals for entertainment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's one of the reasons for the numbers on rodeos to be where they are. Um, we have a situation, you know, Canada certainly has areas where people tend to be more supportive of this, particularly northern British Columbia in Alberta, to a lesser extent in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and some parts of Ontario. But you get to other areas of the country, and it's not something that is supported by a lot of people. And, you know, oddly enough, the fact that COVID-19 canceled the Calgary Stampede, took an opportunity for a lot of people who like this or who could have been exposed to this um, to essentially not have it this time around. So that could also play a role in the way people feel about rodeos in the future. Similar situation in the United States, you know, places uh, that have that legacy of, of being yes. places where you have rodeos are more likely to be supportive of this. Um, but the numbers are definitely down from what we would have seen maybe 10, 20 years ago. 
um, it, it does show that change on some of these topics is something that happens fairly slowly, um, but it's also because of the way in which um, legislatures deal with the tasks at hand. Um, you know, we could do some similarities in this sense with uh, smoking tobacco. Uh, if you had told somebody 30 years ago that the number of places where they could enjoy a cigarette was going to get smaller and smaller, they probably would not, would not have believed it. That's a, that's a great comparison, actually. Uh, um, I have never considered holding those two ideas together in my head, and it does have a lot of very interesting educational components and enforcement and so on that really does show how society adapts to science in some ways when it's presented well, um, which is also probably why we're seeing numbers like the, the support of trophy hunting slip. Like one in four Americans... Only one in four Americans support trophy hunting. And in Canada, it's only 8% now. And as you know, and you did a lot of work on this, the grizzly bear trophy hunt in British Columbia uh, was a huge election issue at the time. And I wonder, did do events like that then also just expose people to the conversation? I think it definitely did. And in, in, when it comes to the British Columbia situation, uh, it had a lot of elements uh, that were unpalatable, particularly from the standpoint of uh, political fundraising. And, and, you know, it led to the belief for, for many voters that the reason the government at the time didn't want to act on this was because they were benefiting directly from those who were in favor of trophy hunting. And, you know, that uh, coupled with other decisions that the government at the time made uh, left a very bad taste in people's mouths. And, and I think that was one of the reasons for them to react to this um, scenario and say, OK, we have to do something about it. Um, politically, it's quite eye-catching in the States because, you know, we've seen a lot of pictures of people connected to the Republican Party uh, hunting animals for sport, uh, it, including uh, the children of the current president of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so there's an assumption there that if you're a Republican, you're going to like everything that they do. And there's actually uh, a split here. Uh, you have 44% of Republicans who are in favor of trophy hunting. And you have 54% of Republicans who are not in favor of trophy hunting. So it's not even a majority of Republicans who believe that this is the right course of action. And it's definitely a situation that has changed over time. You know, it's no longer one of those manifestations of, of you know, macho culture that you're going to go out there and, and you know, kill an animal uh, for fun or for sport. Um, you know, the numbers just aren't there, not even with those who are supposedly more supportive of this practice. Um, the level drops to only 16% among Democrats, 17% among independent voters. So not everybody does this. And I think it's ultimately the difficulties that we have sometimes uh, with the exacerbation of social media. You know, you see a picture of Donald Trump Jr. who just killed an animal and you assume that all Republicans behave that way when they clearly don't. Well, and I think that's so important, too, because on social media, then you get trolls and bots and pundits and well-meaning people getting into that conversation. And it's it's what I was implying with that CBC comment section thought of when we look online, we're not seeing a realistic picture of the world. We're seeing yeah. what an algorithm has chosen to show us among a group of people who felt it necessary to comment potentially anonymously about a political subject from far away. 
Well, and this is something that has uh, sadly crept in more because of the ability that those news organizations have to collect information. You know, I can tell you that one of the saddest days for our industry was when Twitter decided to create Instapolls. Mm-hmm. And now you have a bunch of people there who are clicking on something that is not properly written, not balanced, not really representative. And you can add as many caveats as you want um, to the way in which you report those findings. But somebody's going to go out there and say to their friend that 70% of people agree with them when we all know that it's not the case. Um, I think, you know, one of the ways in which this could be dealt with is to have something that is a more meaningful and more proper way of of, um, uh, gathering the feedback from your readers, uh, because this is only creating more misinformation and it's making it difficult for those of us who want to have a representative sample of people to get our message across. Well, and that's, I'd love to talk then, this this actually leads quite perfectly into the fur part of this, because yeah. if we're to listen to government representatives, I'm not going to put this on you, uh, <laughs> I, I'm certain you try to remain apolitical at times, so we do have a lot of members of our government saying, well, no, wearing fur is, imp- like killing animals for fur, it's important, it's a part of our heritage, and we've got very vocal people um, saying, no, I want the right to do this, and it gets... Again, it gets tricky because social media, sometimes you get Americans talking about Canadian subject matter. Yes. Um, and it gets, ve- that happens on our social a lot. Uh, we have people talking about the, um, uh, America has, uh, the United States has a an act that requires a portion of all hunting money to be funneled into conservation efforts. Uh, we don't have that in Canada, but people think we do because it's talked about so much in the US. That's right. As an example. So in this though, we, we're seeing what I consider exceptionally clear numbers. And as someone who has done a bit of work in politics and some work in media, getting 81% of Canadians to agree to anything is kind of remarkable. Um, and again, 75% of Americans that I, I, to me, this just seems very, very obvious that, you know what, people just aren't okay with this anymore. Um, well, is that is that a, a fair assumption to take from this data? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that is really surprising to me, one of the reasons why we always ask uh, people uh, to be either strongly in favor or moderately in favor, moderately opposed or strongly opposed, uh, the level of strong opposition for killing animals for their fur is 56% in Canada. The only thing that gets a higher level of strong opposition is hunting animals for sport. So this is not contentious anymore. When you have more than half of Canadians saying, not only I don't like this practice, but I thoroughly despise it, that definitely shows that things are different from the way they were before. And you know, looking into the issue, there's only uh, one area of the country where you have less than two out of five people saying that they strongly oppose um, hunting animals for their fur, and it's Atlantic Canada, 38%. Again, you know, all the discussions about uh, the seal hunt and, and the benefits that it could bring to some communities in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. That is the legacy of those discussions, but it's definitely not a situation where you have um, the split between regions. You know, this isn't like asking about where we should face oil, knowing that Alberta is going to say, no, definitely not. We need to keep it. Um, You know, it's different. You know, it's starting to creep up in Atlantic Canada also. Um, But when you look at the rest of the country, particularly British Columbia um, and, and Ontario, you know, there's more than three out of five people who say definitely not this is not something that i'm in favor of and, and again that's a, it's a significant number um 
And I think one of the other things to note with Atlantic Canada is Nova Scotia has been the epicenter of uh, factory fur farming in Canada for the last hundred years. So there's also, when I went out there a few years ago to interview people, I had the police called on me twice just for being there um, because there is so much contention in some of the communities about fur farming. I met people who said, I'd love to talk to you about it, but my brother-in-law is getting some work from a farm, so I can't. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, again, a weirdly fascinating cultural thing that occurs, but I think it's probably very similar that we see in other big ag or in other big industry. Um, and when we consider Atlanta, Canada is largely the epicenter for factory fur farms, uh, like 70% of people in that region outright saying no is again, I consider very significant. The question then becomes, what do we do with this? I mean, we, we've got, and a uh, again, as anyone who's spent any time in politics, when you get 81% of people agreeing to something, that's pretty miraculous. So what do we do with that data now? Do we like 81% of the Canadians are opposed to this? Why is it still a conversation? Well, I think it is because of political reasons. You know, we, we could go back to discussions related to the uh, sale of asbestos and, and how the governments of Quebec consistently said, no, we don't want to touch this. We don't want to lose three or four seats from the people who benefit from this industry, which is essentially profiting from something that is inherently toxic, so mm-hmm. much so that we don't use it here. We just export it to other places where they don't know better or don't want to know better. Um, that has changed. You know, the way in which governments have been talking about this over the past five, six years is definitely different from how it was 10 years ago. And I think that might be one of the situations that we encounter here. You know, ultimately, when it comes to an issue that is affecting the livelihood of people, you need to offer an option for those who depend on it. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest challenges. There were, there are always going to be people who say, well, this is the way I earn my living and this is something that you can't take away from me. But we've seen some of those changes um, in the way industries behave before. You know, our milk is not being dropped every morning by a milkman. Mm-hmm. It's no longer being brought into our homes by a horse-drawn carriage. You know, there might be ways in which you can offer the people who live um, by, you know, commercializing fur, uh, other ways in which they could do things. And it'll, it'll be a challenge for the government. But I think part of the problem is Atlantic Canada is not uh, particularly attractive when it comes to seats. You know, I don't see any yeah. of the uh, local parties taking this on. And if the federal government were to try it, um, they might lose a few seats. You know, if they were Ontario and this would be the epicenter, things would be very different because you have a lot of seats there that you require to form the government. Yeah, I actually read a a great comment from it was probably in the last year sometime uh maybe during the conservative uh, leadership but more or less saying um if alberta wants change they have to stop voting conservative this is at the federal level because the liberals know they're not going to get any seats so they're not going to create policy to try and get seats they're going to try and get poli- they're going to try and get seats where they know they can which is it's largely Quebec Ontario uh, that's what they're aiming at um, so it was a very interesting piece of advice um, but i think it's also applicable here of if you keep just voting one way then the party's not going to work for you because they yeah. know they're going to take advantage of it it's just like a relationship right um, absolutely and you know we have 
examples uh, of that type of switch in places that have a lot of voters. You know, the going back to the first successful election from Stephen Harper. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to lower the GST, and that brings us the 905 belt, and that gives us a minority government. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't have done something like that so successfully if it had been located in an area where you don't have a lot of people who can vote. Well, in Ontario, we had uh, natural gas plants. There was one in Oakville, my hometown. Yes. At the last minute, the provincial government pulled the plug on it at a cost of tens of millions to taxpayers because if they didn't pull the plug on that power plant, they were probably going to lose to the Conservatives. And I think like it, that got called out by everybody at the time. Uh, yeah. And has long been since forgotten, but it's a very clear act of this. And that's maybe one of the issues is the support for this kind of stuff is spread out across the country as opposed to very, very specifically regionally. Um, yes. And it, that it just becomes a lower priority because especially right now, um, you know, getting food on the table, making sure there is a table is the priority for so many families. Um and, and with all of these elections going on that we were talking about, you know, how do we cut through the noise of COVID and of the economy and of debt and jobs uh, to say, by the way, there's a whole lot of suffering happened that most people don't want to happen. And you could very quickly phase out like we're talking a total of maybe 30,000 people across the country. Uh, yep. And that's a, a very favorable number, including factory fur farming and trapping and ancillary services um, which don't depend just on those activities so again when we look at it from that perspective it's not actually that large a swatch of population uh, in British Columbia we're looking at like a thousand people maybe if that yes uh, so it seems kind of remarkable you know in Ontario same numbers we've got what 11 million people in the GTA that's 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 winning the federal government right there. So if we make it a priority, maybe it would get through. Um, but well, that's a whole lot one of, of the speculation. Things, uh, well, one of the things uh, that could be successful and it's not political is letting the market decide. And, and you mm. know, we've seen a little bit of that when Nordstrom announced that they're no longer going to be carrying anything made out of fur. That sends a shockwave through the industry. It's like, okay, well, if they are moving this way, maybe we should rethink our relationship and we should actually figure out what to do with this. You know, the, the, the notion that women are more likely to say this is inhumane and we don't want this to happen, that is the market that you're supposedly selling the fur to. Mm -hmm. So there is a sociological change from the respondent and the way in which you relate to this, but there's also the market. You know, if nobody's buying this, and you can, you know, score a few points by saying that you're not going to be carrying this, other outlets could follow suit. And then it becomes a question of how do you get this? You sort of turn it into something that is more of a niche market, uh, which is probably going to make people even more upset. Um, but you will start to change it, not only because people's attitudes are evolving, but also because the market is no longer there for these garments. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And that's what we've seen with Canada Goose. I was uh, just talking about this with someone. In fact, they went from very quiet, very quietly, not putting fur trim on a lot of their new lines. And then in the last year, outright said, we're not buying new coyote fur. Um, yeah. like it, it, they can claim to be supporting the fur industry all they want. Still, the reality is one of the biggest buyers and trendsetters for fur in Canada is saying, we're not doing that anymore. Um, so that alone is pretty significant. Um, 
But I, I, I want to get into some of the, the political stuff, too, because this is very interesting for me. Um, as some listeners know, as you know, I used to cover politics a lot in media. A friend of mine shared a post about how much fun it used to be and how it's changed. Um, <laughs> because you know the excitement of sitting around in a conference room at midnight, tracking numbers, trying to arrange, well, for me, trying to arrange interviews with candidates. Yeah. Uh, there's always some stale donuts that no one wants to take the last of and crappy coffee. Like, it's an exciting exciting time it really is you're up till four in the morning then back at work at 7 a.m um covering an election used to be exciting and now it's it just gives me anxiety and stomach aches um that being said one of the things that comes up a lot and has come up a lot and i think the last time we spoke we talked about this too is people not believing anymore um whether it is the politicians themselves and there's nothing we can do about that and after that last presidential debate they're on their own um but in regards to what we were just talking about some of this polling we're seeing uh in the last election and i know we talked about this all the polls said hillary was going to win and then at the it, it all the polls were wrong well, not all the polls. Your poll was right, as I recall. Uh, your <laughs> poll was. Was, was surprisingly accurate, um, all things considered. And so now we're seeing in BC with the NDP calling an election during a pandemic and a lot of talk. So some people saying, oh, well, it's this or it's that, it's this. In these t- And there's the Saskatchewan election, but I don't think we're expecting many surprises out there. Um, sorry, Saskatchewan. Um, <laughs> the The thing that i find interesting though is how do we how, how do we properly use surveys when we're talking about politics and how do we possibly get through the amount of and i i am not going to say fake but unreliable statistical analysis we'll call it, Let's on, call on, it that. yes on behalf of various news organizations how do we deal in this day and age well i think the lesson from 2016 uh, aside from always look at the electoral college and not only the voting intention numbers at the national level, is that you need to continue polling all the way till the end. You know, I was able to do a few states in that election, uh, and it was actually a lot of fun because you know we had a perfect number in in Washington State, for instance, that was you know made us very happy, uh, and it's the kind of thing that you want to see at least once in your career. I mean, obviously we have to deal with margins of error and who's going to win. But the biggest difficulty that we had in 2016 is that the final week of the campaign, we didn't have any polling conducted in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan. I think pollsters who were operating there thought everything's done, you know, Hillary's ahead by four, five, seven, 10 points, whatever. This is obviously something that costs money to the polling companies because you have to have people working the phones or doing the online surveys, uh, factoring everything in, and they, and they thought it was done. So if you have a sudden change in the electorate on the final week, that is the kind of thing that can happen. Uh, I don't think we'll make that same mistake as an industry again, and we'll continue polling all the way through. Uh, but the pandemic offers another challenge, which is a lot of people voting by mail when they're not used to doing this, um, making sure that you voted for the for the candidate or the party of your choice, and also continuing to poll all the way till the end. Um, it's important because uh, we might be headed into a situation where there's going to be complaints about who won and who didn't. Uh, it doesn't seem that the incumbent president is ready to go mm. uh, if the result of the election uh, it d- does not go in his favor. 
And it's going to take some time. You know, we're not, we may not be able to go to bed uh, having all of the votes counted or a specific trend uh, for all the states that are in place. So we might be in a situation similar to 2000 where you don't have the speeches, you don't have the concession, and you need to wait a little bit longer. That time it was because the election was very close. Uh, but this time it can be because every state has a different way of, of counting their ballots. You know, Florida, for all of its flaws, they can start counting ballots 20 two days before election day. So that is my, that might be one of the places where we have final results uh, when we go to bed on election night. But many other states don't have the same regulation. So this is why it's crucial for people who are doing polls the right way to have that information out there. You don't want to be in a situation where the president says that he got 70 percent of the vote. Um, it, it might not be true. Let's hope it's not true. Um, there's my... <laughs> Slightly honest political statement of the day. Um, How do we as consumers, as consumers of media, consumers of content, figure out what is trustworthy and what is not? Because I think that, I mean, I know how to do that with media articles. And for me, it's very much just clicking on links and finding the original information. Um, But when we start looking at this kind of stuff, the data can be overwhelming, particularly for those of us who maybe didn't do great in math. Um, (laughs) It's just a lot of numbers, very like it's it's difficult to wade through, even when I'm uh, doing research or reviewing uh, studies to do interviews like this on very specific biological things. I spend half the time looking up terms and bugging friends saying, what does this mean? and How does it work in this context? So I can at least have a conversation about it. And that's not even understanding it fully. That's just knowing enough to be able to ask some questions. Uh, how do we deal with that influx of data and wade through what is good and bad? Whether we're dealing with, you know, the U.S. election, B.C.'s election, uh, or looking at the surveys of what Canadians and Americans think about animals. Well, I think there's there's two elements that are crucial here. Uh, one of them is... Um, the methodology of the surveys. You know, everybody's sharing something. Uh, we saw Univision in, in the States just a couple of days ago putting a Twitter poll that said that Trump had won the debate. And, you know, it took them a few minutes to realize that it was unscientific, that it's not something that was supposed to be representative of uh, the entire population of the United States or of, or of those who watched the debate even. Yeah. Um, and the president tweeted it a, a few minutes later. It's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, I won the debate. Thank you. But, <laughs> you know, if you're only going by that, you don't really know what is happening. So, you know, checking the methodology, making sure that the data is coming from a source that is reputable and that shows the actual breakdowns. You know, I think that is also important. Um, you know, some people in our industry have decided that they need to make more money. So they have their websites behind a paywall. Well, that's not a service to the community. Um, if you're charging people in order to take a look at the tables of something that you say is happening, you know, I, I, I despise that idea and it's not something that I would endorse ever. Um, but aside from that, there's also the element of how you write the questions. I think that's also part of it. You know, when you have the media... Uh, reporting on a headline or just having a couple of things that says, you know, 50% of Canadians say this or 70% of Americans say that. 
be able to look into the source and look at the question. Because if the question was not something that was fair and balanced, um, you're bound to get a majority of people to agree on anything you want. And, you know, I think that is one of the biggest challenges of the industry. You know, it's it's remarkably easy now to find a suitable sample source, uh, but it's not easy to write questions that make sense. And ultimately, when you have... Um, the media basing everything on the headline or, or on a couple of data points, um, you need to be able to look into the way the question was written because that will have an effect on the way people react to something. To read the full results, including the complete data set from Mario Canseco of Research Co's survey, head over to researchco.ca or follow the links in this week's show notes. I want to thank Mario for joining me. Our conversations are always illuminating. I also want to thank AnimalStone.com for their ongoing support. You really should check out their jewelry. It's gorgeous and directly helps wildlife. Remember to hit the subscribe button on your preferred podcatcher to get notifications when new episodes are available and check out the entire back catalog of Defender Radio. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>